The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, July 20th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The world is a dirty, deficient, declining place. It is warming. Water is waning. And there are giant masses of non-biodegradable plastic clogging up the world's oceans. Eight million tons of plastic. And we might feel powerless, but what if I told you, if we all sacrifice just a little, we could make a difference? How much of a difference? Well, listen to this. Yeah, we'd have to give up a welcomed convenience that we've all come to rely on and quite like, in fact. But if we denied ourselves this convenience, we can solve, are you ready? We can solve all but 99.7% of the problem. You do it, right? Oh, oh, oh. And what if I also told you that it would leave the most vulnerable population the worst off? But remember, the upside is that 99.7% of the problem will still remain as bad as ever. Wait, you might say, that sucks. Yes, it does. Literally. Because I'm talking about plastic straws. Three years ago, a video of a sea turtle with a straw up its nose went viral At the time, TMZ erroneously reported the turtle had a $2,000 a day coke habit. When I'm on the Galapagos nose sugar, I feel like I'm going 100 miles a month. Okay, that's not true. It's a great turtle impression, though. Sad turtle. Let's rethink straws. But the actual statistic is that plastic straws only account for 0.3% of the world's plastic usage. That is a statistic, however, and as we will find out later in the show, statistics often lose to more powerful emotion. But this is the top of the show, and we haven't learned that lesson yet, so bear with me. Turns out Starbucks is going strawless. If you want to vacuum up your beverages at 30,000 feet via a thin cylindrical plastic tube, fly at different airlines than Alaska, and the Chicago White Sox have also gone strawless. The White Sox know from that which sucks and blows. This year, they are in second-to-last place in their division. But last year, they were in second-to-last place in their division. But the year before that, they wound up in second-to-last place in their division. In fact, you have to go back five years to find a White Sox team that didn't come in second-to-last in their division. That was, of course, the story 2013 White Sox that came in last in their division. Look, I don't know what any of that has to do with straws, except I remember the Yankees of the 1970s, a great team, a World Series-winning team. Why? Reggie Jackson, who called himself, quote, the straw that stirs the drink. I also, as a Mets fan, remember the 86 Mets, great team, who is the best power hitter straw, Daryl Strawberry. Anti-straw animus does seem ill-conceived. Closer to my home, the Barclays Center in Brooklyn announced a ban on straws. New York One was outside Barclays. Two youngish white ladies thought it was a great thing, but this woman dissented. What about the people that cannot drink that you depend on plastic straws? Like people that have disability, that cannot hold the cup, they use this straw to drink. And now she just starts staring into the middle distance and then says... Everything is an issue. The part about people with disabilities needing plastic straws is correct. I predict restaurants will stock straws for the disabled. They will be blue like handicapped parking, and we could get some virtue signaling 
in the back end and we can get some virtue signaling in the ban itself and even more virtue signaling in the exception to the ban. By the way, I'm not against virtue signaling. It drives human behavior. But I'm thinking about that second thing she said. Everything is an issue. It's some piece of guilt to shoulder, some curse of knowledge, some awareness that we're poisoning ourselves or the kids or the world. The sacrifice of going without straws is admittedly pretty small, but I think the benefits may be smaller. The problem isn't that people like straws, although I really do think people like straws. I like straws. I like blowing the paper wrapper across the room at one of my kids, and then when he tries it to me and it's mostly spit, getting a little mad at him. I I love it when the coffee guy leaves a little bit of paper on the very top of the straw. It's like a reverse bris. He takes off all the parts under that little tippy top. I bet communicable diseases have plunged in areas where the coffee guy leaves just the tippy top amount of paper on the straw. But everything is an issue. We changed our toilets and our light bulbs and our BPP bottles or BBB or some with B's and P's that supposedly was going to kill us. Or styrofoam. We threw out our styrofoam or didn't throw it out or composted it or whatever. And we know, you know, those were all necessary sacrifices. They really did have an environmental impact. We got by. The new lights aren't as crisp. The new toilets don't flush as well. But I'll be damned if I'm going to give in to Laura Ingram and talking points about how the toilet flow regulation is the death knell of freedom. My argument isn't a freedom argument. It's an accrual of supposed responsibility argument. It's filling our bandwidth with data to feel guilty about. When I was a kid, groups protested, ban the bomb or save the whales. But those efforts were sharp and directed at the communities that were making the bombs or killing the whales. Now, Every movement is flattened in its dissemination and in its targets. It's just another thing to worry about, to feel bad about, to measure ourselves up against, and to find out that we're not doing well. I know it's just straws, and one day it'll be eyelets, and after that, aglets. So what I'm saying is not that straws are the last straw. And also, this particular dromedary has a stronger back than all that. Also, I'm not making this out to be a bigger argument than it is, just so I could easily beat it up. That would be the straw man. What I am saying is this. Let's keep in mind what that woman said. Everything's an issue. And I don't think straws needs to be one. On the show today... Every few weeks, we do an Antan Twig where we round up comments and make corrections. Today's a little different. I'm going to do an Antan Twig on Thursday. Today, I wanted to focus for the entire rest of the show on Wednesday's segment. I try not to be indulgent. For instance, I wrote a book. It is called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. I mentioned it here a few times, but I didn't talk about it for months beforehand. I didn't talk about it for months afterwards. Try not to kill you by mentioning when I'm going to be on TV or radio or my moving company, Pesca Schleppers. Try not to waste your time. But I do want to talk about this interview just because it was interesting. And I would like to hear your thoughts about that. You can contact me on Facebook or Twitter. So give me a second and we'll be back as I set up a discussion with a few special guests from a podcast in the Slate family. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust 
of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. And now the spiel plus interview plus I don't know what this is. An accounting. An ombudswomaning. So I got a lot of response uh, about my segment on Wednesday, my interview with Allison Yarrow, and some people did like it, but many did not like the fact that I used the spiel to compare statistics between the 80s and 90s and see how the status of women improved or declined between those two decades. And the reason I wanted to do that was that in my interview with Alison Yarrow, who wrote a book called 90s Bitch about how different cultural icons of the decade were mistreated in media by sexist tropes, we got to talking about differences in the decade. Let me play for you now that part. Was the 90s less sexist than the 80s or more sexist than the 80s? I wrote a book about the 90s, so I, I would say more, but I didn't, I didn't write a book about the 80s. You think the, the 90s were more sexist than the 80s? I think for the first time you had the 24-hour news cycle, so everybody was turning on their television and sort of getting these rich stories, internalizing them, watching them all the time. You remember the Bronco chase, Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan, sort of updates and interviews and constant, constant coverage and fodder and ways to plug into these stories and the ways that they they were told were so inherently sexist. So we were able to just feed off of them in a different way. The 80s didn't have the same kind of media infrastructure for storytelling. Now, I don't want to say that I was uh, shocked, but I disagreed with her assessment. And I do think if you hear the whole interview that she made a lot of good points that were really valid. You don't need me telling you they were valid, but I do think they were valid about using culture and media criticism as one lens to judge cultural progress. I happen to be more of a stats guy, so I was eager to explore through the lens that I explored through. And my motivation was that I did an interview where I threw out there, well, I think you can empirically prove through different data points that the 80s was a bit worse than the 90s. So rather than just throwing out an assertion and leaving it there and hoping and believing I was right, I thought it would be proper to check in to see if I was right and then possibly to demonstrate that I was right. I thought we'd all be better off if I backed up that assertion with evidence. Maybe not. Or maybe, and this is probably true, not in the way that I did it. A lot of people wrote in to say that I undercut Yarrow in my spiel, and it came off as petty and unfair. Now, that that wasn't a setup. I didn't do an interview to just set her up and prove my point. It wasn't a hit piece. I thought it was a journalistic exercise. But you know what? If I came off seeming like an asshole to the majority of the audience, then ipso facto, I did something wrong. Maybe it wasn't the majority of the audience. Maybe it was just the majority of people who wrote in. That's why I'm inviting you, if you care to, to contact us on Facebook or Twitter or, or email or you know, skywriting to tell us what you thought of the whole thing and this whole thing. But I get the sense that the people writing in were saying things like, I like you, I like the show, this one was off, it didn't feel good, and here's why. Okay, so I can think of a couple things that I should do in the future if something like that comes up. One is not to do the segment. I get into 
a debate or there's a point of contention in an interview, I probably shouldn't use the spiel to hammer home my point. Or maybe I should do it in a different way. Maybe I should set it up with more context to be clearer about my intentions and my motivations. But probably the one-two punch of, here's an author interview. Thank you, author. Now here's my rebuttal to your thesis without you sitting there. That is going to seem objectionable to a lot of members of my audience. I probably won't do that again. All right. Now, there was another part of the interview that was objected to internally. And in a second, we're going to have a storied panel come on to talk about it. So Alison Yarrow's book sketches out the sexism of the decade in media coverage. And it does so through a few prominent women, Monica Lewinsky, Lorena Bobbitt, Anita Hill, they really do illustrate her point. And she wrote a lot about Courtney Love. And in my opinion, Courtney Love does not illustrate her point because Courtney Love was the target of a lot of sexism. That's true. And the double standard. That's true. But also, she also did a lot of heinous things that deserve disapproval. So what I'm going to do is play the exchange I had with Alison Yarrow about Courtney Love. And then we will be joined by, I'll keep it a surprise, but it's on point. Um, let's talk about Courtney Love for a second. So if I agree with you on Lewinsky, I am not a Courtney Love fan. Actually, I like her music and her persona is fine. But to me, just like uh, Amy Fisher puts a bullet in the head of uh, Mary Jo Buttafuoco, I mean, she punches Kathleen Hanna in the face. She's, she, you have numerous quotes in your book. I didn't have to do extra research. You know, threatening violence against female journalists. You're right, to some extent, Criticizing her for being a terrible mother in the same way that we don't criticize Keith Richards for being a terrible father is a double standard. But to what extent do we want to hold Courtney Love up as anything other than the author of most of the opprobrium that came her way? Courtney Love was reaching for male power, and she had a kind of ambition that you could call very male. She put her leg up on the amplifier. She threatened journalists with violence. Yeah. There isn't really— She threatened Tina Brown. She threatened Tabitha Soren. You know, she threatened—she she wasn't a good feminist, I don't think. I'm not arguing that any of these women are good feminists. That's yeah. not my argument. My argument is the way that they were covered in the news media. Uh-huh. And Courtney Love did lots of actions that many male rockers also do. Taking—you know, she was—allegedly she took heroin while pregnant. That's why she threatened Lynn Hirschberg, who reported that. Yeah. Um, there are examples, there are countless examples of male rock stars behaving in the same ways that Courtney Love is said to have behaved. But the way that they're treated is different than the way that she's treated. And that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to create the distinction between the treatment. I got that. Male rockers and female rockers for the same behavior. But when you have a child in utero, it's different if you take heroin versus if you're the father who takes heroin. That's just different. That's different. But again, we don't know, we don't know the facts of this. We don't know exactly. Oh yeah. We don't know if she really did. So Daniel, my producer had objections to that. And I listened to those objections. I said, well, let's just air it because I felt that the pushback was fine. And I don't think that the things that I said about Courtney Love were not things that I believed. And it actually led to a decent discussion, I thought. But I said, you know what? Let's, uh, because this whole, if this whole thing is an exercise, this whole thing of the gist in the interviews like this or an exercise in, you know, being open-minded and trying to figure out where you went wrong, if you went wrong, I invited the following people to sit next to me. Maybe you heard some of them before. They weren't just magical fairies who are flitting about serving as ombudsmen. They are, in fact, the 
the hosts and, in one case, producer and host of the Waves podcast. They are a few of the Waves, half the Waves, I think. Verlin Williams, producer and Waveser. Hello. Hello, Mike. June Thomas, original Waveser. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Christina Caterucci, Waveser extraordinaire. How are you, Christina? Great, thanks. Okay, what were your objections to my Courtney Love question? Christina, you go first. So as somebody who writes a lot about reproductive rights here at Slate, um, my hackles were raised at first when you said child in utero because I'm used to people calling them fetuses. Um, And so that sort of prompted me to take a closer look at that whole segment. In general, it rubs me the wrong way when anybody, especially a man, tries to call someone a good or bad feminist because – What does that even mean? Um, And what makes somebody a bad feminist if they threaten women journalists with violence? Why doesn't that just make them a bad person? I don't really see what that has to do with feminism. The other thing I didn't like about this segment was um, the part where you sort of push back against Alison Yarrow saying that women and men shouldn't be treated differently for the same behavior. So in this case, it was Courtney Love doing heroin. And you mentioned that, you know, if you're doing heroin with a child or a fetus in utero, it's different from, you know, the father, let's say, doing heroin or somebody not who isn't carrying that child in their womb. For me, I think that it's hard to make judgments about somebody's behavior from the outside when you're not their doctor. Who knows what Courtney Love actually did? Who knows how serious or long-running her heroin use was? This is something that is kind of impossible to judge from the outside. But beyond that, I think you could make the argument that having a father who is a hard partier, addicted to drugs, allegedly violent and abusive is just as, if not more, harmful to a child's well-being. So that's what I'm going to say about it. Now I want to hear everyone else's thoughts. (laughs) So... Alison Yarrow is making a point that the media coverage in the 90s, because, and I listened to the whole segment, because the 90s has brought on, um, like, media is just more accessible. There's a 24-hour news cycle. Media is, just, people are just, like, all the time getting these images, right? And in that 24-hour news cycle reality that has started in the 90s, we see an onset of the way that women are being covered in relationship to men is more sexist, right? And so that's essentially her biggest argument, like sexism through the lens of media criticism. And I think in that moment when you're talking about Courtney Love as a person that she covered in her book, you're making the, you're trying to rebut her argument by saying, well, how are we quantifying sexism? Like, how are we quantifying the way that we things feel sexist? So if there are statistics that prove that, um, you know, there are benefits to women, like, then that means that it's not sexist. But I think the one issue is that I feel like you didn't address her argument head on in the segment. I think maybe you understood it. Like, I'm giving you the benefit of that, Mike, as my colleague and someone that I know is extremely smart, that you understood her 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 argument. But I think, like, the audience... Have, has not heard you fully accept what she's saying. And so on top of that, you're like talking about what a good feminist is. You're making assertions of what sexism feels like to women. So like all that stuff is like people are no longer hearing your points, which can be valid. But I think there was a moment where you should have addressed what she was saying head on and you didn't. So and that's obviously I'm a producer. So I think about these things like 360. And I and and that was my biggest issue was like, I, oh, dang, I wish that that moment Mike had like 
addressed what she was saying head on, maybe talked about the ways in which, you know, the media critique, the fact that she said that there's more media in that moment. You kept bringing it back to the 80s and thinking, you know, and I was just like, but the point is the 90s had specific <laughs> she's bringing up the, the ways in which 90s were specific all by itself and you weren't kind of addressing that and june uh, i don't have anything to add to the courtney love point to what uh, christina said because i think uh, she said that very clearly but i just want to bring things back to the whole segment so i haven't heard or read what your correspondent said what the people who send you emails or gave feedback said But my view of the segment was that you were responding to a book that you wanted rather than a book that she wrote. Mm. To me, you know, this book book is called 90s Bitch, Media Culture and the Failed Promise of Gender Equality. And as you say, there's a juxtaposition issue that you went from talking about this and giving her some pushback, which I know that's your your metier. You're you're a pushback artist. Like that should be like your Twitter bio, pushback artist. Uh, and In a stand so, your ground world. Yeah, so you did that. That's fine. But then when you when you immediately went into your spiel, it almost seemed like you were then challenging and undercutting everything that she said. It's almost as if she wrote a book about the Battle of Waterloo, which happened in 1815. And after you, instead of engaging with her thoughts on Waterloo, you instead went into a thing about, yeah, well, what about the Battle of Trafalgar, which happened in 1805? And how come, why weren't things a lot better at, Traf- at Waterloo than they had been at Trafalgar? Like, why were you focusing on what her book wasn't about? And then to add more to that, she, you know, she, this one was writing a book about the 90s and about 90s pop culture specifically. That's right in the title. And you went into a bunch of stats, which fine, not my thing, but yours, as you say, that's your thing. But <laughs> then you so you went into this big role of stats. But then you said you, you kind of said, well, but hey, Joan Collins, Shannon Doherty, the first two women that you mentioned were women who are especially light and fluffy. And it doesn't matter. Like She wrote a book about pop culture. That's what her book is about. You know, so to bring those up, I just, you know, I've, I'm a man. I've been talking about this really important stat stuff. But, well, I guess Joan Collins is interesting, too. Like, you know, it, that's how it sounded. Whether you intended it that way or not, that's – when you are a woman and you're used to listening to your life being sort of treated in a certain way, to hear, like, Joan Collins, Shannon Doherty, you're like, okay, click. Okay, so I'll take uh, – since this is probably the order in which people remember them, I'll take your point first – the reason I brought up Shannon Dougherty was she's in Alison Yarrow's book all over the place. She's a major person that she wrote about. I said in my spiel that I think it's more important the progress of things like the wage gap and the number of women in Congress than whatever progress can be traced from Joan Collins to Shannon Dougherty. I was trying – I picked Shannon Dougherty because she was all over Alison's book. And I'm like, well, who's the 80s analog? And I thought of Joan Collins. So what I'm saying there is – and then I said the trend lines from Jane Pauley to Katie Couric, who I thought was an 80s equivalent to a 90s equivalent. So what I was arguing there is that I think stats like – I told you all the stats I, I think violence against women are a lot more important to judge the progress of a decade than cultural stats. But so again, that, that was just about you. I was yeah. just about. Yeah, that's also not about, not what her book's about. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Well, I would argue, yeah, it's about me. That's me stating my opinion. Listeners and you can agree. No, uh, maybe you want to say, I think that the media, you're not saying that the media, I'm not putting words in your mouth. I know you guys aren't saying that media coverage of pop icons is more or less important 
important than number of women in Congress. I know you're not saying that, but you're saying I should take the book based on the argument that the book was making. And like I asked her, fine, this is the argument that the book is making, but overall, what about progress from decade to decade? And like she said, she didn't write a book about the 80s, so that's a fine answer. But then she also said she thinks that the 90s were worse for sexism than the 80s. And so what do you do with that if someone says that? In the media. She didn't say that. She said she thinks the 90s were more. But I asked her, were the 80s or the 90s more sexist? And she said the 90s were more sexist. So I get the impression from her book, from someone who is between the ages of 8 to 18. And she even said, I didn't thoroughly examine the 80s. But I get the impression that, I don't know, she, well, I don't get an impression. I just heard what she said, that she thinks they're more sexist. And I was essentially trying to prove a case, which I guess can be called mansplaining, but it also can be called, wow, you gave a lot of evidence that was convincing to some, like some of my listeners, you gave some evidence that would indicate that the 80s were more sexist, just like the 70s were more sexist, just like the 60s more, were more sexist. And let me just say this and then I'll let you go, which is now I, I realize and I said at the end of the spiel that there is a flaw to that argument that just because progress is being made doesn't mean that there's no more work to be done. And it also doesn't mean that it's been enough. And I explicitly said that. And I even said, I don't think measuring time periods and seeing if progress has been made is sufficient. But she literally didn't say that progress was made. She said that uh, we went back from the 80s to 90s. So I thought that that was a statement of fact that could be rebutted in a robust, empirical way. As somebody who writes about sexism a lot, I think that the way you're framing it as a sort of monolith, sexism as a monolith, is not quite right. And I think the framing there is what's the problem? Because I see in sexism, um, in racism, in homophobia and transphobia, that there are a lot of different factors that can be moving in opposition to one another. So for instance, I know in the past couple years, we've seen uh, advancements in gay rights, we've seen enormous increases in visibility and culture for gay and especially transgender people. Then you look at all of the legislation being passed against trans people's rights to use the bathroom. And that's something that's, I would argue, is happening almost because of that increased visibility and growth of acceptance for gay and trans rights. So if you were to ask me, was five years ago more transphobic than now, I wouldn't know what to say because there are a lot of different factors moving around and sometimes cultural sexism is moving in a different direction than, Mm, you know, legal sex, legislative sexism. Yeah, but uh, acknowledge, and I think the trans point is good. I actually don't know the answer. If the question was, has the overall issue of gay rights increased from, and we'll pick a time to a time, there are ways to try to get at that answer. The World Economic Forum issues the Global Gender Gap Report, and they take dozens and dozens of different pieces of data, and then they give countries a grade or a rank, and that sometimes is shameful for the United States. And then we look at Denmark and we say, oh, maybe we could do better. Of course, I guess you could argue that, you know, that the 
global gender gap report card is treating things as a monolith, but is trying to get to the question of progress. How do you ever get to the question of progress if you can't say we've progressed in these tangible ways and also acknowledge, but in some ways we haven't progressed and in some ways there's still a lot to go. I think that's worthwhile. But, I mean, but the thing is, Mike, that this is something that you brought up and that's great. You know, that's something that you want her to engage with, but it's really not something that she was particularly prepared for is my impression. I uh, haven't read the book, well, I, which you have, I presume. And so I can't really talk to the the you know, the content of the book. But my impression from listening to the interview was that you asked her a question that she was just like, oh, you know, and she said explicitly, which I know a lot of people wouldn't have like, that's not what I've studied. I'm that's, you know, I'm I can talk with great fluency and great authority on the 90s. Eight is not really quite my thing. And so to me, like her answer was not meant to be this like severe and uh, carefully scientific response. It was like, yeah, the 90s were plenty sexist. Yeah, but and, my And so then for you to then go on and on and on about it, it's like, it feels like you're picking on her instead of, as you're saying, I'm talking about how it felt to listen I to it. it. That's, yeah, a lot of people felt that way. I probably should have taken uh, a couple days if I visited yeah. the topic um, because it made her look bad in a way I didn't want to make well, her think, look or bad. Or maybe it made you look bad. Sure, that's what a lot of people say. <laughs> June! Um, but I think, I think that... Unlike your Trafalgar and uh, Waterloo question, it's as if someone came in and wrote a book on Reconstruction and I said, what about the Civil War? And they said, well, I don't really know about the Civil War. I mean, one decade leads to another. And if we're going to take a snapshot in time and say things were bad here, I think it's really worthwhile. I, I don't see how you can argue, and you're not arguing this, but I argue that context is really worthwhile. Not to exc- nothing that I did, and to your point, Verilyn, I think in my interview we agreed on the Lewinsky points and we agreed on the Bobbitt point, and I just wanted to make the point that of these different women who exemplified her thesis, Courtney Love was a poor example of that, and I could get back to that in a second. But I think if you're coming in and you're writing a book about the 90s, it's fine, it's fair game, it's an interviewer's responsibility to ask something about what came before and maybe about what's some, what something that could come after. How far before? Like, is it, would you, would you, is it okay to ask her about the 70s? Is it okay to ask her about the 50s? Like, how far Yeah, well, back? the further away we get, I think that the more reasonable it is for someone to say that, you know, that's really out of my ken. And she did answer, and we both, I guess, co-commiserated about, you know, the in, in like a 10-second chunk about sexism since the founding of America, right? So that was all acknowledged, I think. Um, now, to, to go back to uh, why I think Courtney loves a bad example, I literally said I understand that there are double standards, but if we're going to pluck different women out as case studies and we're going to try to show that sexism was visited upon them, I think the thesis with Courtney Love, she had a lot of sexism aimed at her, but she also seems to be an asshole in the way that Axl Rose is an asshole. And some of the opprobrium was of a sexist nature, but a lot of it was also things like constantly threatening violence against journalists. We cited three female journalists and 
punching Kathleen Hanna. And the reason I said bad feminist is that that's something that Kathleen Hanna actually threatened Courtney Love to like debate feminism. I thought that was pretty funny. And the last point is, and we just disagree on this, Christina, but I want to get to a bigger point that I do think it's more harmful for a woman who has a fetus to do heroin than for her husband to do heroin. But here's my question. You hear me say that you disagree with me. Does that mean it's a failed interview or an interview where or that part of the interview is failed? Or do you ever say, I'm disagreeing with the interviewer at this point, but it's fine and I could get to a useful place? Yeah, I think I came at this because Daniel, praise to Daniel, just sort of sent me the clip. It is right to give him thanks and praise. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He sent me the clip and was like, hey, like, let me know what you think of this clip, basically. Like, didn't say what his issues were. Um, just let me assess it on my own. And, you know, I had a couple issues with it, which I have already explained. Um, but mostly I was like, well, this is Mike Pesca's shtick. I feel like it was very much in line with the way you approach a lot of topics where you have a very strong opinion. You try to, you know, pin people down on exactly what they're arguing, um, maybe poke holes in their argument. And that's what makes your podcast so popular, I think. The fact that it was that 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 sort of shtick was directed at, you know, what is a good or bad feminist? What what exactly is the nature of a woman's responsibility to her fetus? And is she more responsible for its health than her husband or the father? The fact that it was directed in a gendered space made it more objectionable to me. And so if I was a fan of your podcast, not saying that I'm not a fan of your (laughs) podcast, but, you know, if I was a listener who wasn't me, but with my same point of view, I might think like, oh, yeah, that's like Mike Pesca being Mike Pesca. And I identify with um, Allison Yarrow in in this in this particular interview. Not necessarily that it was a bad interview. I'm with you. By the way, I, I to interrupt, which is something that we men do. I'm with you a hundred percent of the way. Except shtick can also mean heartfelt belief, right? It is my shtick, but it is what I believe also. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't mean shtick in a in a derogatory way. I just mean that this is the way you approach interviews. And if the topic was something other than gender and pregnancy and feminism, I probably wouldn't have made any objections to it, you know, if it was about sports or something. But the fact that it was about a topic that, A, I is my job and my beat, and B, is, you know, a, a core part of my worldview made me think twice about it. I wouldn't have necessarily turned off the podcast. I think Alison Yarrow was did a wonderful job and it was a, you know, fascinating segment to listen to. So I wouldn't say it was a failed interview. I do think the part um, that everyone else has been discussing where you sort of tried to pin her down on a framing that I think was fraught and maybe misguided in terms of which decade is more sexist than the other, I think that was possibly a failure as an interviewer. Can I ask you a question, yeah. Mike? Because of how the interview went and, and then how it felt after with the juxtaposition with the spiel, I'm really curious what you thought of this book. Like, not about sexism one decade versus the other, but how did you... Th- what did you think of the book and what did I mean and what did you think of the Alison Yarrow interview or her as an interview subject because she like you gave her a great opportunity to yeah. to push back and I thought yeah. she was great so uh, last part first. I thought she was great in the interview. I thought she gave really good answers. I thought that her 80s answer wasn't good, but it's because she didn't study it. And so maybe in the moment 
I don't, she, I don't know why she said the 90s were worse. That's what she studied, and it seemed pretty bad. It's like, well, I just, I just uh, climbed out of this uh, sewage. I can't really compare it to the muck pile right to my <laughs> left. I get that. Her interview was really good. And the book, for what it was, did a good job, uh, mostly. And that's what it is. And that's what it is. The book is what it is. As soon as I saw it on my desk, I said, oh, is she saying that the 90s were better, were worse? She wasn't. And then I said, oh, I I should ask her about that. Okay, one more thing I want to go to. So, Christina, you said, you know, your space is the feminist space when I take my shtick and it is visited upon the gendered (laughs) space. You pay a, a little extra attention or maybe are a little, you get your back up a little bit about it. Understandable. Is that good, bad, legitimate, illegitimate? Should I change? Should I change my tone depending on the audience? Uh, the definitely not. I think I certainly would not advocate that you go easy, so to speak, on a woman or a black person or anyone who doesn't necessarily share your identities. What I'm saying is that this is an area of my particular expertise, and as June mentioned before, I think that when somebody in an interview is Uh, holding forth on feminism in a way that I think makes it clear to me that they don't necessarily understand all of the forces at play in the same way that I do in that I think a lot of women do just by by the fact of our existence. I am more likely to be critical of it. And I find the same thing when I write about sports, which is not my area of expertise. I'm fans of particular athletes. So, for instance, the other day I wrote something about Jaylene Hinkle, this outspoken homophobe who was called up to the U.S. women's national soccer team. I'm only fans of a couple soccer players because they're gay and I follow them on Instagram. I don't know that much about, like, what other defenders are out there. Is there anyone better than Jaylene Hinkle? Could have they picked someone else? And I got a lot of feedback from people saying, like, oh, well, she's so good. You just don't know anything about soccer. They had to choose her. I think it's totally fair that they're more critical of me because I wrote about sports than they might have been when I was writing about abortion rights. But do you think that uh, when you mention things because of your expertise and when you hear someone expressing inexpertise, you notice it? Did I say anything that was wrong versus things you disagreed with? No, I, I don't. You definitely didn't like make any errors. I'm mostly well, referring to the I fact that. Okay, whatever. Please. No, I'm yeah. not saying errors. I think like I. I mean, like I actually stopped listening to the 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 spiel section because I always get really um, flustered when I hear statistics that feel like they don't. They're not intersectional. I think you did like throw in a line about immigrant <laughs> women, but I do. I do. I sometimes question, like, who, who, when these statistics, like, who exactly are they speaking about? Because, um, you know, R. Kelly is still a thing. <laughs> you know, the people that, you know what I mean? I just think, like, like when you think about black women and black women as far as, like, violence and abuse and, and like, whose who's, um, pain or whose violence gets to be covered, you know, there's not always an intersectional lens in those things. And I often get frustrated because I often feel like they're not talking about women that look like me. Okay, so you're talking about, I was talking about the uh, Violence Against Women Act, and I cited the instances of violence against women dropping, but because I didn't break it out by race, it wasn't as meaningful to you. Well, and you also, mean? like, you, you you credited it to Bill Clinton, who at the same time was, like, putting in welfare policies that adversely affected African-American communities. Like, you know, so things like that where it's like, oh, okay, what are we, what exactly are we... Like, what are we qualifying? Like, how are you Like how are you thinking about it? things being better for women, I think, it sometimes feels like 
where where the averages can obscure exactly what's going on, where there might have been a lot of progress for white women, but not for women of color and, and black women in particular. And that's something that is definitely true of, for instance, maternal mortality rates. And I think that's definitely part of what I'm trying to say, Verilyn, where I don't know many you know, feminist scholars or women in general who would ask the question like, oh, was such and such a year more sexist than this other year? Because it's almost impossible to say, and I don't think statistics even tell close to half of the full story. So that's a good point. Next time I do something like this, which is to say a grab bag of statistics that try to show a picture, it's good to uh, also dig deeper and try to uh, show it how it worked for black people, Hispanic people. I'd just like to talk about Waterloo a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go out on that ABBA song, Waterloo. Guys, thank you. You didn't have to do this. And uh, I heard what you're saying, and it will be reflected in the content of the gist from this point forward. Here, here. Or at least in the gestalt <laughs> of the gist. Thank you, Christina Catarucci, Vera Lynn Williams, and June Thomas, who are just some of the many waves that can come crashing to a podcast near you. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you, Mike. Mike. Thank you. And that's it for today's show. And thank you to my listeners for this, I'm going to say, this indulgence. Please reach out to us about this segment, Wednesday show, Thursday, September 14th, 2017's show. I'm all ears, partly earlobes, you know, some of those three little bones, hammer, anvil, whatever. The gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Pierre Bienname. They saw that I got the Aubon Pan protein pack rather than just boiling an egg at home and eating four of the office grapes. And they want to stage an intervention with the Slate Money team. Steve Lichta is executive producer of Slate Podcast, and I finally figured out his game. He's setting up his stable of talent against each other in a devious Machiavellian steel cage death match of the earbud. The gist. By the way, if we were to ask about the victor of the Battle of Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington, if he was better or worse than the prime minister who came after him, guess what? We'd be talking about Earl Grey. Yes, that Earl Grey. And wouldn't it be worthwhile to spill the tea about that fellow? I ask you. Oomperu, dapperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.